Hey, this is Ryan Rogers, and I'm the pastor at the Palmer Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope that this message gives you a glimpse of how beautiful our God is. Well, God surprised Elijah by taking him on a journey. See, Elijah had already taken a journey down to Beersheba, and then he took another day's journey into the wilderness. And when he gets there, God says, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And Elijah must have been thinking, what journey? You never told me about this. I've arrived at my destination. I'm a long ways from Jezebel. Where are we going? God had plans to take him further once he got away from the noise. And we have in God a heavenly trip planner who has planned these journeys for us to come with him into the silence. And in those places, there are rich experiences I just think, how often have I missed out on the journey because I was just unaware that God was inviting me into the silence where I could have found freedom and healing and joy. Today, we're continuing the story of Elijah. This is a part two, and we've divided the story into three movements, the onslaught of noise, the journey into the silence, and then finally, the sound of silence. So last week we covered that first movement, all that noise. But part one was turn down the noise. And here in part two, we're going to encourage ourselves to tune in to the silence. Turn down the noise. Now let's tune in to the silence. And I have some hopes for this message. I hope that you have some insights into what it's like to tune into the silence and to hear God, but I also hope by the end of this message that we are just excited about meeting God in that place. The thought that He has a journey planned for us, that we're highly motivated to find Him in the silence. We leave here craving that, so I invite you to pause with me and pray as we get into the message. Father in heaven, I pray you'd put in us a desire to meet with you and tune into the silence and hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. The second movement of our story is the journey into silence. And silence is a journey. As we travel with Elijah, let's place ourselves in that story. And we see several things. We see that the journey happens alone. We left off in 1 Kings 19, verse 3. It says, Then he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. That poor servant, this whole time Elijah has been ultra marathoning across Israel, that servant had to keep up. So he is super willing to be left in Beersheba. Go ahead into the desert, Master Elijah, take your time. And as good as that servant might have been, there are times when we have to leave the servant behind and we have to go by ourselves alone. So we left there a day's journey into the wilderness. Much of our spiritual life happens in community. Silence happens alone with God. There are times we have to get away from people and things and be with God. Silence is not primarily a discipline of engagement but a discipline of abstinence. Silence happens alone with God. 
And then we see that the journey brings to the surface whatever lies just beneath it. Here's what it says in the rest of verse 4. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Well, good for Elijah for, pl- for praying when he felt terrible and suicidal. But what a depressing prayer. His summary of all the miracles he'd just gone through was that he was a worthless failure. His solution to all that noise was not at that moment to hear the still small voice, but was to end his life. Why was Elijah so emotional anyway? I thought the silence was supposed to be a place of emotional health, and he's, he's all messed up. Well, I want, to, want you to imagine this scenario. You're in a room all by yourself, there's a chair, and you just have to sit in that chair in silence for 15 minutes. Do you think you could do it? You think you'd enjoy it? Now imagine that there was this button that you could push. And if the silence became too uncomfortable, you could, you could push that button and it would shock you. Would you push the button? Well, this study was actually conducted by a psychologist from the University of Virginia. And uh, what they found is that 67% of the men pushed the button. 25% of the women pushed the button. Rather than just remaining in silence, they pushed the button. And the button didn't take them out of the silence, it just distracted them from the silence. Why was Elijah so emotional? Why do people push the button? Well, some of those were probably curiosity pushes, like, I just want to feel what this mild electric shock feels like. But some people actually preferred the pain and the physical discomfort of the shock over the emotional discomfort of the silence. Because silence brings to the surface whatever lies just underneath. So if you try some silence and it's uncomfortable and painful, well, that's normal. Because if right under the surface of your emotions, buried by the constant noise, is anxiety or fear or shame, what silence does so effectively, it brings that to the top. And rather than covering it, we confront it. We also see that the journey is slow. We read in verse 5 and 6, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. See, Elijah wasn't ready for the still small voice. He was just in the adrenaline rush of coming out of all the noise, and God actually had to prepare him for the still small voice. Sometimes we're at a place where what we need most to connect with God is a good night's sleep, some healthy food, and adequate hydration. Elijah needed to sleep. Actually, it happened again in verse 7 and 8. He needed rest and food and water before he could hear the voice of God. So we'll benefit from five minutes of silence scheduled in our day. That'll be a good thing. But sometimes 
the journey is slow and we don't hear the voice, the still small voice until day five or day eight or day 40. And after that, Elijah went for a really long, slow walk. So he had already come a long ways and now he was at the beginning of this walk, a day's journey into the wilderness from Beersheba. Well, he goes to Mount Horeb. So he's going about 250 miles and he does it in 40 days and nights. So that's about six miles a day. That's way slower than the pace he had been going. The further he got away from the noise, the more he slowed down. God took him on a very slow journey. It was 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness, 40 days Moses spent on Mount Sinai. And it's, you know, God's pace could be more efficient, but it couldn't be more transformational or intimate or healing. Not all the journeys into silence are the same, but a lot of them are really slow. And this journey into silence clarifies our perspective. In verse 9 we read, There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that the perfect question for self-reflection? What are you doing here? And God led him to reflect on this in the journey into silence. In this journey into silence, Notice that God asks questions before he gives answers. Many times when we seek God, I think what he does is he asks questions and, and prods us to think and reflect about life. Like, what are we doing here? What's our mission? What's our focus? So that we can sort out those emotions that in the noise are just confusion. So Elijah thinks about what he's doing here. And the world of noise was screaming its agenda. This is what the world wants us to be doing. And Elijah is able to say in verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it. Oh, so that's what he meant when he prayed his suicidal prayer for God to kill him. He meant, hey, I've been very jealous for you and everyone's against me and I'm alone. Those were his emotions that fresh out of the noise, they came out in a really ugly way. And now his statement as isn't actually correct, but he is able to accurately articulate his feelings. So in this journey, it gives clarity because in the noise, we're not even able to name all the things going on inside. The silence helps us to name that stuff. That stuff comes to the surface and we're able to say, oh, that's what it is. Elijah's taken this incredible journey into silence and now we're at movement three of our story. He's had the journey, now it's time to hear its sound. We look at verse 11. And 12. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces 
the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Verse 8 identified Mount Horeb as the mountain of God. And the other name for it is Mount Sinai. God took Elijah to a very special sacred place to be alone with him, speak to him in the silence. But it's not a sacred place that's the formula. It's not a still small voice that's the formula. In fact, there is no formula because earlier on this mountain, we see God speaking in all those other ways, fire, earthquake, and wind. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses is on that mountain and he hears thunder and lightning and there's a thick cloud, there's a trumpet blast. We see that the Lord descended on the mountain with fire and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So God does speak in those other ways. In fact, we find that Elijah himself was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. God is in the wind. God, Psalms say that God rides on the wings of the wind. Acts 2 shows the Spirit showing up in a mighty rushing wind, the Spirit that shakes the place in Acts 4. And we see that God answers by fire on Mount Carmel. He shows up in a burning bush. God can scream over the noise. He can communicate in any way he wants. He can speak to us through a book, a friend, a sermon, nature. Sometimes he saves his words for the silence. We don't seek to experience a formula. We seek to experience a holy God. So I've made it to the top of our own special mountain. And God invites us, as he invited Elijah, go stand on the mount before the Lord. An invitation to all of us. Like We can't require that he speaks in a certain formula, but we can place ourselves before him on the mount. Elijah did that. He saw all that earthquake and wind and fire. And after the fire, there was a low whisper. And God was in the whisper. It really all built up to this. There was this sound that Elijah had come for. I started this message with the song, The Sound of Silence. Do you know what that song's about? After looking into it, I'm not sure that even Paul Simon knows what that song is about. I find all kinds of explanations online because it's a mysterious song and people want to be able to explain it. So some think it's a tribute to the JFK assassination. Others think it's speaking of just the social disconnection of the 1960s. Others have theories that it's, uh, it's speaking of Americans' hesitancy to speak what's really on their heart in the Vietnam War. They can't share their feelings. Well, the sound of silence is a mystery. And that's, that's what the sound on the mountain is. It's a mystery. No one really knows how to translate it. The still small voice in Hebrew is three words. One, a very common word. The other two, pretty uncommon in scripture. And we don't know how they fit together as a phrase and what it's really supposed to mean. So different translations 
try different words, like some of them I have here. The NIV says a gentle whisper. The NASB says a gentle blowing. The CEV says a gentle breeze. And the King James Version that we're more familiar with says a still, small voice. And that's such a, a popular phrase now. It's actually made it into our, our dictionary of phrases. The still, small voice refers to our conscience. Well, I think it's a whole lot more than that. Elijah was not just experiencing the echo of his own personal values in his head. He was experiencing God. It was mysterious. It was holy. It's untranslatable. It was a moment with God. And it makes the climax of the story almost an anti-climax because this sound, the one we've all been waiting for, it comes. And we don't even know what it says. We don't even know that it said anything. But Elijah felt it. We read in verse 13, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Do you need that experience? When is the last time your morning devotions ended in you wrapping up your face and standing in silence? It was a holy moment with God. God invites us into something personal and mysterious and indescribable in the silence with him. And it might not speak any words, but it doesn't need to. If it did, we couldn't even articulate them. We just are called to experience God in that moment. Well, God followed that up with actually speaking through words. We read in verse 13 and on, it says, And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So it's the same question. And if you read 14 and 15, it's the same answer. But this time, God responds with words. Verse 15 through 18, we, re we read God's response, and it's incredible because God responds concisely and specifically to everything Elijah voices of concern. So Elijah says, hey, I've been very jealous for you. And God says, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. He says, Go back to your mission. And then Elijah says, The people have forsaken your ways. And God says, I have new righteous people. Jehu, who reformed Israel after Ahab. And Elisha, who would take Elijah's place. He tells him to go anoint these people. These are the people who are not going to forsake me. Then Elijah says, Yeah, but they killed the prophets with the sword. And God says, yeah, but these people I'm raising up, nobody is going to get past their sword. Then Elijah says, but I, only I am left. And God says, actually, I've preserved 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. God took every point of Elijah's concern and he corrected him in a gentle, loving way and pointed him to truth. And then he sent him back. 
See, the moment of silence sends us back to the mission. It's like he came all that way, a long, long way, just for that. There was no other business meeting or thing he had to do in the Sinai region. He came all that way for that moment. The moment was valuable enough to justify all that travel and time. That's how much God can bring into our lives by meeting us in the silence. And he sends them back because we weren't made to stay in the silence. We have some incredible examples of past Christians who have found disciplines and practices to enter into the silence, like the Desert Fathers. Well, some of those people, they never returned back. They just stayed there. And others learned that we retreat, not from the world, but for the world. We go away in order to return filled with the Holy Spirit on mission for Him. So that's the final part of this journey. He heard the voice, and the voice sent him back into the noise, tuned in to God. We're going to conclude our study with one more song, the song Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. It's a three-movement composition by the American composer John Cage. And you can imagine the scene of its first performance. It was the summer of 1952 at an outdoor concert hall in Woodstock, New York. And the accomplished pianist David Tudor walks on the stage. Everyone's watching with anticipation as he sits down and covers the lid over the keys. And he sat there in silence for 30 seconds. Movement one was complete. Then he uncovered the lid and covered it back up again. And he sat in silence for two minutes, 23 seconds. Then he uncovered the lid, covered it up again. And he sat in silence for one minute and 40 seconds. Finally, he rose and walked off stage. His sheet music in front of him instructed him to play rest for all three movements. He played it perfectly. John Cage was interested in silence. He had visited these anechoic chambers, which means echo-free rooms, so that he could tune into the sound that's there when all the other sounds aren't there. I learned that NASA astronauts prepare for space in these chambers because the silenceness of space is so striking to our constantly noise-bombarded ears. You can hear your organs functioning and your blood pumping. All these things that are happening right now, we just don't hear them because there's all this noise. Well, John Cage was fascinated by this, but not because of the silence. He was interested in the sound, the sound we hear when we enter into the silence. Every performance of 433 is entirely different. It sounds like the place where it's performed. It sounds like the birds. It sounds like the humming of the air conditioning. It sounds like the cars. It's the noise that's there when the other noise is gone. God is in that place. He has a voice 
something to speak to us when the other noise is gone. I invite you to have your own personal performance of 4.33. Sit in silence. You could take it longer than 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And let that performance just be the noise that's there with you and God when all other noises are gone. Turn down the noise. Tune into the silence. I hope you're excited to meet God in that quiet place and let him restore your soul. Thanks for listening to this message from the Palmer Seventh-day Adventist Church. Find us online at palmerak.adventistchurch.org and at pastorryanrogers.com.